tip today in association with Slattery's of Pecan, your main Peugeot dealer for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Sandra, welcome along to the second hour of Tip Today. Talk to Linda for free on 1800 938 007. The text and WhatsApp is 083 311 And at any time at all, of course, you can email us tiptoday at tipfm.com. Of course, we're always glad indeed to hear from uh, you. Lots and lots of text uh, coming into us, and we will uh, get to them in just uh, a little while, we promise. Okay, now I've lost uh, John Lynch's um, <laughs> jingle, jingle today for some reason or other. John, I, I'll sing <laughs> it for you. I'm not going to sing it, no, no, I'm not. <laughs> but listen, it's good to see you, John. How are you? Um, you're going to finish off with our, our legal New Year resolutions February, and all of that. Yeah, in February, yeah. That we've been doing for the last mm. uh, month. What, what have we to finish with, John? Well, bottom line on it is that the old reliables I don't think I've covered... Well, I mean, I probably cover them any number of times during the course of the year. But there's a couple of things that are fairly obvious. Making your will is an obvious one. And I noticed last year now, because we put a particular drive on in terms of making wills um, and advising clients to make wills, that, we, the you know, making wills, a lot of people uh, kind of say they'll do it and don't do it. Mm. But I think sometimes we can help that along the way by making sure that they actually do do it when they're with us. So the bottom line on it is that it actually doesn't take too long to make a will. You know, once you're clear as to what your intentions are. So the kind of golden rule is you've got to nominate somebody who's going to look after your affairs for you when you're gone. Number one. Number two, you've got to decide who gets what. And... Uh, Number three, if there are children involved, you have to think about appointing guardians to look after your children. So they're the kind of three things that you kind of look at and make sure that you have right. I mean, if you do up a nice schedule of your assets, don't mind your liabilities to you, but if you do up a schedule of your assets, that's very handy because it goes with the will. But a very simple, straightforward will, you know, doesn't take a huge amount of time. So there's no reason why it can't be done fairly efficiently. The other one that... I'm very much a fan of, if that's the right word to use, is what we call an EPA, an Enduring Power of Attorney. And the reason that I'm very much a fan of it is that I believe that the longer we live, the more likely it is that we're going to need people to help us on the day-to-day management of our, our affairs. And the important thing about that is that there's no point in trying to plan something like that after the fact because unfortunately sometimes people can lose the ability to manage their affairs and under current regimes that's quite a catastrophic event insofar as you know people can't get access to funds they can't get access they can't make decisions where they should make decisions so the whole area of enduring power of attorney is critically important i think as far as the whole planning forward planning is concerned and enduring power of attorney effectively is like what we call in the trade a living will so effectively what you do you nominate two people who will literally look after everything for you and that automatically kicks in uh, if that's not too crude a way of putting it that automatically activates once somebody loses capacity mm. and that's an important and do you decide on that activation and you know at what period or what the criteria for that well what's decide, what decides what 
determines the activation is lack of capacity. So if somebody loses capacity, so if somebody, you know, I mean, the most common example, what common, uh, you know, the one that that would come to mind would be, you know, early onset Alzheimer's. You know, in that situation, people start to lose capacity. Mm. Now, it doesn't mean that they have to permanently lose capacity, but, you know, in a situation where you lose capacity. So, you know, that's that's where your enduring power of attorney comes in. Now, the other, the other one that I was actually thinking about this morning when I was looking at that, and it's one that kind of strikes me, and that is that, you know, people, when they're forward planning, sometimes don't think what's in front of them. So, for example, people who are living together who aren't married... Uh, I think one of the drives that I think we should be looking at is trying to ensure that there are more agreements in and around uh, people living together who aren't, if you like, covered by the legislation that's out there for, you know, married couples. And, you know, this becomes more and more is becoming more and more prevalent insofar as, you know, 20 years ago, the percentage of people that were living together versus the percentage of people who got married. Mm. So it's reversed somewhat uh, in, uh, well, apparently that tells the the statistics have changed. And in that type of situation, you see, there are two kind of agreements that I think you should be thinking about. And one is what I call a property transaction agreement, which is a co-ownership agreement. But more fundamentally, there's the cohabitation agreement. And I think if we went on an agreement kind of day, you'd be talking about cohabitation agreements, co-ownership agreements, prenup agreements. They're all the kind of agreements now. And they're all grounded on a kind of fundamental area of law, which is contract law. So contract law basically means that you can set out the terms in which you enter into a particular arrangement. And when you enter into an arrangement, so if you think about it, one of the most fundamental arrangements that you can enter into is living with somebody. Mm. And not to have that in some way covered uh, is going to give rise to difficulties either under the heading of if there are children involved or if there are assets involved. Now, if you take the cohabitation agreement and put that aside for a second, if you own property jointly with somebody else, it's very important also that you have a co-ownership agreement. And this is one of the things that we were looking at. We were looking at you know, you look at the whole area of conveyancing and you try and think a little bit more outside the box in terms of saying, well, okay, you know, okay, so you buy the house, but you buy the house with somebody and something happens. And unfortunately, you know, when I look back over the last year and I look at the amount of transactions where people came back, you know, maybe two years or three years later, got into difficulty and the relationship broke down and suddenly they have an asset and suddenly a row can break out Mm. as to how to deal with that. And in those circumstances, that can be a very costly row in terms of, okay, obviously from an emotional point of view, it's very costly, but from an actual pound, shillings and pence perspective, it can be quite costly. So, I mean, part and parcel, I've been saying to to Eileen, who does the conveyancing in the office, I said, you know, part and parcel, what we should be suggesting to clients is that if you're buying property jointly, because you see the old, sorry, I was going to say the old, but the way that it's 
usually dealt with is you come in to me and you say I'm going to buy a property with so and so you buy the property and then I might say to you well you know historically I might say well you can own the property as tenants in common or joint tenants and I was looking at a booklet that we had done on conveyancing and it just struck me that it's not it doesn't end there so in other words you can own property as a husband wife as joint tenants which means that the survivor gets all i love that you know yes a crescendo is the lovely little latin phrase that covers it uh, so i thought i'd get that one in. <laughs> but uh, the, the reality of it is that you see if if you're a couple and the survivor gets all you know that works in a couple scenario if it turns out that the couple are no longer a couple and it goes into a family law dispute, well, then obviously the courts can intervene and deal with that. If you're in cohab- cohabiting with somebody and there's no agreement on that, well, then it's wide open for a, a fairly major and significant row. So obviously in the circumstances where it's tenants in common or joint tenancy, which is the conventional way of looking at it, tenants in common is where people own a kind of a notional share in the property. What I mean by that is that in the event of a breakup or a sale of the asset, that ownership crystallises into an agreed apportionment of who owns what. And that is not necessarily enough to to deal with the situation mm. because you know if a couple comes into you and they're not married and you say to them well will you you know are you interested in joint tenancy or tenancy in common historically they say oh joint tenancy is it's like you know when you're down on the mended knee and you're asking you know will you marry me kind of scenario <coughs> it's always quite surprising if you get a no to that particular question now and if you're in a situation where you're buying property as a couple in the in the stages which you're buying you're looking positively at everything so not to be negative about it but to be realistic about it a co-ownership agreement I think is a very mm. important element of, And, and does it matter how long people are together would that not determine how, how this is looked at or is there a common law thing that somebody would no. be seen as a No, no that's see, not here No there isn't right, okay. We don't have common law uh, spouses. We don't have a situation where you can say, you know, it's it's like the old classic common law wife it used to be, but I'd say we should probably say common law person at so. this stage. Yes. But I mean, the reality of it is there's, there is no such thing in Irish law per se. Now, th- having said that, there is the Cohabitation Act, which covers a situation that where people are in an intimate relationship and it's deemed to be a cohabiting relationship, mm. The legis- legislation will pick in, will kick in in those scenarios, but it's conditional on a dependency between one party, and that dependency triggers the liability of oh, okay. the act. Oh, right, so it right. doesn't cover all scenarios. Right. So it's, it's not like a marriage. Uh, no, and it's certainly, right. yeah. and it's certainly not. You know, it certainly doesn't cover what the parties might have wanted to happen. If mm. you know what I'm saying. Yes. Yeah. So the reality of it is. The, the benefit of an agreement is the parties discuss it, work out the details, and then it's right. committed. So the advice, John, is what? The advice is if you're buying property jointly, you should have a co I would recommend that you do a co-ownership agreement. And I think the reason for it should be self-evident, that if the partnership right. breaks up, you need to know what's going to happen in that eventuality. And even if you didn't do that at the start, you can still do that, can you? You can do it at any stage. At any stage. And that's the beauty of it, is that you, can, you can't do a prenup. Mm, yeah. <laughs> obviously, yeah. after the fact. But you, do, you can do a cohabitation agreement at any stage and you can do a co-ownership agreement at any stage. 
So I will be warning anybody who's clients of Lynch solicitors that I will be doing a certain campaign during the year, not to mention asking them all, harassing them, no, but certainly inviting them to make wills, enduring powers of attorney, cohabitation agreements and co-ownership agreements. They would be top of my list in terms of what I would be suggesting that people do. Now, just to move off that, just in case we get stuck on the resolution, and I'm still doing it next week. <laughs> the other area is the debt management area, the whole debt area. And this is an area that I've been working with over the last quite a number of years and I think it's about reaching the point of maturity. It's like a good wine, maybe. Maybe not wine <laughs> might be a good analogy. But it's, 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 it's kind of maturing. It's kind of hitting a point where it is actually starting to work at this stage. Now, one of the most interesting uh, Supreme Court judgments in that area that came out towards the latter end of last year, which personally I thought was long overdue, was that... <clears throat> The Supreme Court has now indicated, you know, when the Supreme Court indicates, it's a very strong uh, message down the tracks, if you know what I mean. But the Supreme Court has said that there's a requirement by a lender to specify precisely how they calculate the money that's due by anybody who's, who's, who owes the money, if you know what I mean. And what it addresses, uh, just to be kind of, clear about it. What it addresses is what used to be a real conundrum uh, with me over quite a number of years because let's say you come in to me and you say I owe the bank X whereas I say you owe the bank 10 grand just for the sake of argument and you say well I think it's around 10. I'm not sure exactly what it is and you get a letter of demand from the bank that says you owe us 10 grand pay up or else and you come in to me with a writ uh, you know a legal document that demands that you respond within a period of time and if you fail to respond that the bank will go and get judgment against you. What used to be always the conundrum was that the client would come in to me and they'd say I think it's right but I'm not 100% sure how right it is. I don't know how they arrived at the end figure but you look at the end of the day you know whether it's 15,000 or 13,000 or 12,000 you know like I owe them money so what do you think I should do? And the reality of it was that you'd often have to say to the client, well, look, if you think it's there or thereabouts, really, this is a fast track method by the bank to get a judgment against you and enforce it. And it costs a lot of money to defend yourself Mm. in these circumstances. So unless you think there's a big divergence there that would justify the cost of defending yourself, oh, look, you know, I'm afraid realistically and commercially you're going to have to accept that figure. Now, doesn't mean that you can't write to the bank and ask, or couldn't have written to the bank and asked them for details. Mm. But the reality was that whatever you got back, you had to accept it. This Supreme Court judgment now says, whoa, wait a second here. The bank is obliged, even in the fast track method, to set out precisely how they arrived and what methodology they used to arrive at the final yeah. figure. And so I that's think what, that, interests and liabilities exactly, and all of that. Exactly, yeah. charges, interest, liabilities, interest rate, how they applied it, etc. So in other words, they had to set out precisely how they arrived at the final figure, which surprisingly enough wasn't the case up to the end of last year. Now, the other thing that I think is also really quite... Uh, novel stroke uh, a good development in that whole area in the whole area of repossessions is that they introduced 
what we call proportionality in the, in the business uh, into the whole area of repossession. So with repossessions now, the courts are obliged to take into account wide-ranging factors rather than just the narrow question of did you owe the money? Was there a charge on the house? And are you therefore, you know, are you do you still owe that money? And therefore, I must get, there must be an order for possession of the house. Now the bank is, are, is now the court is obligated under the legislation to look to things like, well, did you try to do a deal with them? What kind of conduct was there by the bank? What kind of conduct was there by the, the debtor? You know, was there some sort of a deal put up that was turned down? You know, you know what are the circumstances of the house owner, etc. So that has come into the mix now in terms of, and it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out over the next 12 months to see whether or not... Yeah. Because, because I, I, I mean, obviously, the, there wouldn't be the expertise there with the courts to say, well, those liabilities are ridiculous and that, that interest rate is incorrect for that particular liability. How do you get past that? Well, no, how is, you, is that your duty to, to... Well, yes. You see, what the Supreme... To go back to the interest question, what the Supreme Court said was there's, there's a kind of a two two-step process in the whole process of, let's say, a bank coming after somebody for a debt. The first step or the first part of the test that the bank has to get over is they've got to prove that the amount of the debt, so in other words, they've got to show that the amount of the debt is accurate. And if they fail to show that, the, the debtor can say, well, you haven't proven that, so therefore I don't have to go and look at anything else. You must start by... It sounds really obvious, but it is. Now, in a situation, so therefore they must give you the wherewithal calculations. It may very well be that you're going to have to give those calculations to somebody else who will vet them and check them and see if they're okay, which is a very good point. But from a practical point of view, they have to give you the wherewithal. Whereas in the past, what they were doing was they were saying things like, you borrowed X amount in 2005 and now in 2020 you owe you know, why figure, full stop. And there was no kind of details given prior to that. Now, I'm not saying that that would be apply in all cases, Mm. but that would apply in a number of cases because obviously the bank may have given you details as you went along and they may be able to just whip all those and say, well, look, I gave you all this information. There it is there now. So it's just to deal with the fast track and the calculation. And the, the second part of the equation you see is that if... Having established the figure, you're there as the debtor and they've proven the figure, if you know what I mean. The next part of the test is, do you have a a kind of realistic defence to that? So in other words, is there any answer to it? You know, was it that you could argue that you didn't borrow the money or you didn't sign the document or you didn't this, whatever, just follow me, or that wasn't the amount that you borrowed or it shouldn't have been, it, it, you know, it was an amount that was borrowed for something else or you were one of a number who borrowed it, etc., etc., etc. So there's all sorts of, and if there is a, so it's step one is they must prove the, te- the debt and they must prove it, not you. 
And secondly, if they do prove it, then you've got to establish that you've got some form of defence to the debt. And if you don't, well, then you, 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 you literally must allow them to get judgment, if you know what I mean, and they're entitled to fast track it. It's interesting. I presume while all of that is going on, your credit rating is in the toilet yeah. and um, yeah. you have no access to... In the sink, sorry. In the sink, sorry. <laughs> and, and you have no access to, to yeah, credit, I correct, suppose. yeah, correct. And if you, don't, if you can't rectify that, you know, your credit rating is, de- is literally determined by your liabilities in those circumstances. It's amazing. A question I know you got before, John, but you just might answer it again. Could you ask, John, if the house deeds are in my name, how do we prove my wife also owns the house? Well, they're married, so there's a natural claim there, is there? Well, first of all, if the house is in the sole name of one of the couple, there, it's a very easy thing to transfer it into joint names. That's number one. So if the spouse is still there, it's a family, what they call a Family Home Protection Act transfer. Doesn't carry any taxes, no stamp duty or whatever. You affect the transfer. So that's number one. It would be the first piece of advice that I would offer somebody where the house is in sole name. The second thing is that the spouse's right to the house, if you like, is entirely dependent on a breakup scenario. So, in other words, if you had a breakup scenario, the courts would look at it and may determine that the spouse is entitled to a certain percentage as of right, if you know what I mean, by virtue of the marriage. But if the party was the sole owner of the house were to die in the morning, you would have to, you would have to, first of all, the second piece of advice is you make a will transferring it immediately to the not immediately, obviously one has to mm. presume that that's what you would, that you would transfer it to the spouse. If you don't make a will, then you've got your whole legal right share. In other words, there's a legal entitlement to a third of the estate. Well, again, it depends on whether the children or not, but there's a legal entitlement by a spouse to the estate. So that's one, two, three. And the final thing, of course, is that if you if you if you're in a situation that you die in the morning, you've got to extract a grant of probate. So in other words, you'd have to go through the process of probating the estate to transfer the asset to the spouse. Now, if the house is in joint names, it automatically transfers. Right. You don't have to do anything other than lodge the death cert to prove the death of the... But even that, you don't have to right. do. But is the main... The simple piece of advice is to put it into both oh, names, yeah. is it? Simple yeah. piece of advice. Well, number one, make a will. Yeah. Just in case it takes a bit of time. And number two, transfer it in joint names right. under the Family Home Protection Act. And somebody else saying, forward. would you mind asking John where I should store the deeds to my house as I now have paid off my mortgage? Well done, you. And uh, I have them in my possession now. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because clients will often come into us and give us a bundle of title documents and say, and I remember we have a safe in our office that we put title documents into. But the first question that I would ask, uh, would say to your listener is that, are they actually title documents? In other words, uh, you should check to see what of them are critical documents that you need to retain. Because if you own property that's registered in the land registry, for example, as opposed to conventionally a bundle of title documents. So, okay, almost all properties now must be registered in the land registry going forward. So give it 20 years and there won't be any title documents per se, bundles of title documents. Because mm. historically, what used to happen was 
I'd buy I'd buy a house from Joe Bloggs. I'd get a document and I'd hold on to it. I'd then sell it to you. You'd get a document and hold on to my document and your document. Then the next person would get one. So you'd have a whole line of documents, right. a bundle, literally a bundle of title documents. Now, so what happened then when they introduced in 1964, somebody correct me on that, when they introduced the Registration of Title Act, it literally took the documents off the table, gave it to a central registry, and the central registry set up a computerized system and put you up as the, uh, as the new owner on that register. So if you wanted to prove that you owned it, all you'd have to do is say to somebody, go look at the register and you see I right. owned it, right? And was the history there as well? The yeah, history the history. Of the, of the you, house. Could yeah. Track, you could track the history yeah. there if you wanted it as well. So that's the first question. Are they actually title documents? That's number one. Now, Within those documents may be documents that you would want to retain. So, for example, you might have a declaration of compliance with planning permission that you might want to hold on to as a kind of an essential thing that if you were to sell the house in the morning, you had to prove compliance mm. with planning. So, the, so the, what I would say to that particular individual, I'd be happy to have a look at the documents. That sounds like a plug, but it's not. But I think you look at them first, establish what are actual title documents and, uh, you know, if it's, if it's a land bridge, you don't have to be worried too much about it. And normally what you do is you'd either, you know, people leave it with the bank and the bank leaves it or if it's at home, you can put it in a very safe place or whatever or if it's with your solicitor, most of us have safes and you can put right. it into the safe. Um, Does that answer that? Lo- loads of questions coming in. If property is in trust for my daughter but land registry hasn't been completed, who owns the land, please? Good question. So let me see if I understand that. So Property is in trust for my daughter. Yeah, well, yeah. If, if it's in trust, there should be a deed of trust. If there's a deed of trust, that deed of trust will have the trustee as the, if you like, upfront owner of the property. So if I hold property in trust for you, I'm the person that will go on the title. If it's, if it's a trust like that and you'd be named as a trustee, very important, by the way, to register a trust, very important to nominate the fact that there is a trust document. But if it's not registered in the land registry once the documents are registered in the land registry you have priority right okay very it's a very uh, it's not a straightforward area but you need to be careful because obviously once you lodge the documents in the land registry they then take priority over any other document uh, that comes after it, if you know what I mean. Right, and uh, you've preempted, in fact, the next question, which is about how much does it cost to register my house with the land registry on the freehold register? God, we're getting into the detail now. <laughs> For the first time, I have all the deeds of my house. Is it necessary or should I bother? Okay, right. Uh, uh, the cost first of all registering with the the there's a set cost yeah. off the top of my head I can't tell you what they right. are there's a set cost you know I if I was to say it ranges between you know 300 400 euros right so it's not a huge yeah somewhere. yeah right. so the the first question is it's always handy to have it on the register that's the first thing because just from pure modern efficiency uh, do you need to register you you're only obliged to register unregistered property unregistered property on the sale so now going forward if anybody sells a property they must register it it's called first registration right. so all unregistered properties now under the law must on a sale be registered now you can voluntarily register property without a sale 
but actually it's more expensive to register a property voluntarily than it is uh, on a sale because there's a presumption that if there's a sale there's a full investigation of title and the solicitor can certify the title and the landlord she would accept that cert but in the case of a voluntary transaction in other words if it's an unregistered property if I have a property which ha- I have my bundle of title documents I'd like to register it it's more expensive to, to actually do it voluntarily than not Alright John All right. always a pleasure thanks All very right. much Thank John Lynch from Lynch Solicitors in Clonmel we'll take a break back in a moment Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecone, Tipperary's main Subaru dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecone, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie 